Poddo. Oh, yes. Well, where are you going? I rather fancied East Grinstead. East Grinstead? Back in 1994, the year that Sony released the PlayStation, Channel 4, one of, at the time, Britain's sole quartet of terrestrial TV stations, broadcast an hour-long documentary in its witness strand, titled, Why East Grinstead? This was the show's provocation. Why had this little town on the edge of the high weald, for all its manifest conformity, become this hotspot of alternative thought? What was in the air, or the water, or the chalky southern English soil? And the purpose of life and how important they are today. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically what we're doing is, is looking for families in the area about uh, that would be... The documentary is still remembered in the town. When I first discussed this project with some residents, one responded, didn't they just do a documentary about us? Well, yes, 26 years ago. Why East Grinstead is the question that has framed the town. It suggests that most tantalising of things... An answer. This is the town that didn't stare. I'm Nick Hilton. At what point did East Grinstead become a figure of national curiosity? Was it when the Mormons built the London Temple at Lingfield or the Scientologists set up camp at St Hill? Was it when the Burns victims returned from service and founded the Guinea Pig Club? Was it back in the days before formal geography when the earth was ruled by invisible currents that would, in years to come, draw human hands to build churches, monuments and stone circles along pulsing lines of energy? Or was it just ordained from the moment we decided that the question had to be asked? There was talk of this town, which I'd just about heard of, no insult. The idea that all these different people were there and had gone there for some reason, yes, it did intrigue me. But arriving in the town, you think, well, this is just a normal sort of town. What's, what, why have they come here? That's the voice of Ian Seller, a film director best known for his 1992 film Prague, starring Alan Cumming and Bruno Ganz, which competed in Uncertain Regard at Cannes. Two years later, he was hired to direct Why East Grinstead. Of course, in the end, I had no idea why people had all gone there. But there did seem to be a wide variety of people who had sort of found a home there of some sort. And I think that was what I found attractive, is just the mix of normal people with specialist interests, for want of a better way of putting it, had all sort of found a place in the town. And I thought that was great. Was it your idea to sort of frame this tantalising and sort of unanswerable question, why it's Grinstead, or was that sort of just part of the brief? I was just doing a job, I hate to say. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. I guess this question of why, why is Grinstead, do you think it's a, it's a question that's worth asking? Or is it, do you think the, the question of why is interesting? Or are you more interested in just how it happens? I suppose if you said why anywhere, you would perhaps find things as exciting and as interesting. But I think so perhaps it is quite random the way it's landed on East Grinstead, but I think it's not a bad question to ask. You just can't, like, why do people cluster together in certain places? You know, what causes that? So, yeah, I think it's perhaps unfair or, or, or lucky, depending how you look at it on East Grinstead. But, yeah, it's kind of interesting to look just what are people doing here. 
Ian, with all the might of Channel 4 behind him, couldn't solve this mystery. In fact, all he managed was to popularise the question in a way that has left a lot of people anticipating a solution. He has a lot to answer for, in more ways than one. But I'm not happy with leading you up the garden path, pretending that I have some great solution to this question, and then revealing, as Ian did, that it's largely just coincidence. It feels beneath me, and deliberately frustrating, like when you see a pop-up saying that you'll never believe what some obscure 90s celebrity looks like now, and then you click and click and click, battling viruses and pornography, and at the end of it, you still don't know what that obscure 90s celebrity looks like now. Perhaps you never will. The most romantic hypothesis is bound up in the notion of the town that didn't stare. It's the idea that after McIntyre and the guinea pigs had transformed the town into this haven of compassionate understanding in the 1940s, the collective psyche of the place was irrevocably changed. Gone was the snooty, curtain-twitching mentality of Middle England. East Grinstead had become a place of acceptance, free love and devotional eccentricity. It's an attractive idea because it draws together the two great stories of East Grinstead's history. A nice, simple cause and effect. But is it too neat? <laughs> uh, maybe a little bit of truth, but I don't think it would be a main thing. I, d- I don't know. That's the voice of Eileen Barker, a professor of sociology specialising in cults. I, I, I think there's a dis- difference between, which isn't town and gown, it's town and sect, perhaps. I don't think the East Grinstead people are sort of born to be Scientologists. I think it's plausible. That's the voice of John Ronson, an author with a long history of exploring marginalised communities. We we live in a world of bubbles, right? In fact, we live in such a big world of bubbles that many of us are in bubbles, we don't even realise it. And it, it reflects well on East Grinstead, right? A place where you can go if you don't quite fit in and... It's not like Tunbridge Wells, where presumably if you don't fit in, you know, they give you dirty looks. You could make that argument, and I think that it would be a very strong argument. That's the voice of Jonathan Parrott, manager of the East Grinstead Museum. That essentially the, the town has always been quite open to different groups and different things, and it has always been very welcoming in that regard. Whether you could sort of actually say that there is some sort of connection between them would be I, I don't know would be quite loose I suspect I suspect it's perhaps more happenstance than anything else that the, the way in which this has developed so it's always felt a bit myth-making to seek or see this connection between the guinea pigs and the cults if the answer's out there it's more complex and all the old solutions this idea of the place being a confluence of ley lines which more likely than not do not exist or on the prime meridian, don't cut it either. They just leave more questions. If there's a smoking gun to East Grinstead's weirdness, it's the Scientologists. They are a genuine source of international fascination, and St. Hill is a major site for them. Any Scientologist in the world will know about East Grinstead, but the rest of the religions and belief systems in that standard list, Mormons, Opus Dei, Anthroposophists, do they have the same relationship with the town? Take Opus Dei as an example. They're a little subdivision of the Catholic Church, in many ways quite staid and unexciting, made famous by the villainous monk Silas in the Da Vinci Code. Opus Dei members came here in the late 40s and set up a couple of university student residences for for students in London University, Manchester University, etc. And then they felt that they they needed a house 
where they could have retreats and courses out in the country where people could take a break and learn about the Catholic faith in peace and quiet. That's the voice of Jack Valero, Opus Dei's UK press officer. And so I think they looked around many places and somehow Wickenden was available at the time for sale. It had been in the hands of the Astors and uh, they had moved out and moved over to Hever Castle, which is down the road. And so it was available and they looked at it and it's a very beautiful house. So they they got together the finance and, and bought it on a mortgage in 1964. And since then, there's been Catholic courses and, and retreats held most of the time there for different groups and different individuals who, who want to have that input in the, into their spiritual life. I'm interested in what you might call the, the Dan Brown effect on Opus Dei, which I guess is that, to fill in the context, I mean, Opus Dei were the sort of villains of the Da Vinci Code, which is maybe not a very accurate portrayal of modern-day Opus Dei, but how has that sort of shaped public perception of Opus Dei over the last few years? Well, exactly. I mean, we were a Catholic organisation. This is a country where the, the Catholics are in a small minority, and this is an organisation that started outside of Britain, so quite unknown for most of his life here in, in Britain. And then Dan Brown, in this book that became a bestseller, decides to use Opus Dei as the baddie of the book. In the, I mean, the book is junk, but it, it's, it tells a story about Christ. It's really saying that the Catholic Church is a fraud and so on, but it's, it's good fun. And it's, it's put together in a way that's a bit of a page turner. So many people read it. And we had a huge amount of media interest. We had cameras and cam- camera crews and radio stations coming to, to our HQ in London almost every day for, for some weeks, trying to find information. I mean, what the, the portrayal of Dan Brown is almost the opposite of reality. You know, the main character of Opus Dei in the book is the villain. It's a monk. And we don't actually have monks. We, there's lots of monks in the Catholic Church, but Opus Dei is for ordinary lay people, men and women. We don't have monks. So it's a bit funny that th- this, this is the person that was supposed to be from Opus Dei. However, even though it was totally inaccurate and it was all about violence and killing people and all sorts of and keeping secrets over the centuries, even though we've only been around for 90 years, even though all that was false, it gave us a lot of publicity and, and, you know, for us, it was in the end, a really good thing. Some bad information was already there, that continued to be there, but we were able to use the media interest to tell our story. It's interesting though, because from my perspective, working on this project about East Grinstead, when I'm kind of having to pitch what makes East Grinstead so unusual, I, I say, oh, you've got the Scientologists there, you've got the Mormons there, you've got the Rosicrucians, you've got Opus Dei. And if it hadn't been for the Da Vinci Code, Opus Dei probably wouldn't be on that, that list. Do you feel that there's a sense of being grouped in with these sort of cults? Is there any resentment towards that kind of spin on, the, on your group? Well, that's obviously a bad thing because we are, we are not a group as such. We're just part of the Catholic Church. And uh, so to be put into the same sentence as these cults and sects is, is pretty bad. But, you know, that, that's what happened. We, we did, when we set up our retreat house in East Grinstead, none of these groups were there. And we didn't choose East Grinstead particularly because we were, you know, for any particular reason other than this particular house became available. 
The reality is that, without the Da Vinci Code, Opus Dei probably wouldn't be interesting enough to include on a list of cults in East Grinstead. I've not been bothered to check if there are Methodists or Pentecostalists or Calvinists in East Grinstead. The only reason I mention Opus Dei at all is because people think they try to murder Robert Langdon. But there is one thing that does interest me about Opus Dei, and that's their acquisition of Wickenden Manor. It's always felt strange to me that construction of the Church of Latter-day Saints London Temple began in 1955, while it was dedicated in 1958, and that L. Ron Hubbard snapped up St. Hill just down the road at the exact same time, well, in 1959, funny how the distance of several decades makes a single year more or less erasable. Wickedon Manor was purchased by Opus Dei in 1964, and even Hamlewood Park was sold off in 1973, albeit to Led Zeppelin, with their own cultish following. That is in many ways the most direct link between these groups. They all bought up either land or property that had historically been country estates. Instead of ex-Bullingdons and the chattering classes, these houses began to fill up with transatlantic dogmatists. First and foremost, just like you saw with the uh, First World War, and I think probably for uh, many people, they'll probably be most familiar with this from some of the plot lines from Downton Abbey, for example. But the Second World War is sort of like the final death knell, I think, for the landed gentry in this country. That's the voice of Jack Tyndale, who works at the cross-party think tank Policy Connects and helps run the Sea Lion Press an alternative history website. Quite apart from the fact that a lot of the uh, old landed gentry, frankly, die out at this stage, there's also, certainly uh, when Labour come in as well, things like the Town and Country Planning Act, but also, you know, uh, a, a degree of instances by a lot of the left of the party to make a great deal out of, in essence, nationalising a lot of the estates in some way, shape or form. I mean, if, if I may use a personal example, very near to where I was brought up in Barnsley, you've got Wentworth Woodhouse, one of the largest stately homes in Europe. It's got a larger frontage than Versailles, for example. But in sort of uh, 1949, the sort of incredibly cold winter in that year, the Ministry for Power decide to dig up the front lawn of Wentworth Woodhouse. Largely, I must confess, for ideological reasons more than anything else, that's a typical example of wanting to sort of, in essence, sort of like make an example of some of like the last of the old families of the United Kingdom, for example, some of whom still had significant holdings in the collieries, particularly in Yorkshire and sort of the rest of the north of England. Moving on from that, certainly, there's also a sense of families just not really having the money or, to be honest, even like the desire to sort of keep these old estates running in a conventional sense. But of course, you also had from like uh, from Wilson's first government in 64, for example, there was the introduction of two new forms of taxation. I think probably the most relevant one, which will be familiar to many people, is capital gains tax, which, of course, was in essence an effort to uh, significantly uh, recoup a lot of things like inherited wealth. So in, there are some economic reasons for the old families wanting to divest themselves of these vast estates. But I think more than anything else, the most likely reason, frankly, is just that it wasn't really fashionable or the done thing to keep these huge estates in quite the way, shape or form anymore. At the very least, you know, selling off a large amount of grounds for developers and the like. There weren't a significant amount by sort of like the late 50s anyway, but it certainly does start around this period that we see them more or less dying out and it, of course like returning to I think the state we know nowadays of you know the National Trust in essence running them on behalf of the families. Was it a kind of common thing for foreign investment for for instance Americans to come over and buy up these big 
country houses? Was that a kind of a trend over the 20th century? Uh, yes, I think it was. Some of those, I think, are the uh, fairly common like linguistic and cultural ties. I mean, naturally, there's no shortage of wealthy Americans marrying into the British aristocracy, on the one hand, to help provide income for increasingly impoverished families, and on the other hand, sort of just the fashionable sense of a title still meaning a lot for uh, a lot of uh, newly upwardly mobile Americans. suspect a further allure to these international buyers was the 1963 summit between Harold Macmillan and John Kennedy, which brought the Kennedys to Sussex. Indeed, there is, to this day, a plaque in Forest Road to commemorate the visit. Kennedy attended talks at Macmillan's Birch Grove Country House in the village of Horsted Keynes, a curious little place about five miles south of East Grinstead and also on the Prime Meridian. On the next season of the town that didn't set... No, sorry, just kidding. Kennedy for Macmillan represented an opportunity to reforge his image in some sense. That's the voice of Tim Bale, Professor of Politics at Queen Mary. Kennedy was this dynamic force, a very politically sexy uh, guy, someone who was a celebrity as well as a a very powerful president in this country. And I think Macmillan uh, hoped that some of that dynamism would rub off on him. He was obviously a much older politician than Kennedy, but he also fancied himself as the Greek, as it were, to Kennedy's Roman, as, if you like, the kind of wise, older advisor. And the two did actually get on very, very well. Although I must admit, I think um, Macmillan's idea that somehow Kennedy would listen to him more than he listened to even his own American advisors was probably a little far-fetched. I mean, I guess it's a degree of reflected glamour in the friendship with Jackie Kennedy and having them to stay. I mean, I, I don't know whether you know what the perception of at the time was, that it was quite exciting to have the Kennedys sort of touring southern England with him. Yeah, I mean, the Kennedys were this incredible celebrity couple. I mean, we talk now about Donald Trump and his wife, but I think you'd have to say that the Kennedys were even bigger then than than they are now and also taken much more seriously because I think America was, you know, the hyperpower at the time. And the Kennedys did have this this great glamour for, you know, sleepy towns in Sussex. This would have been quite a big thing. The conditions were all there for the property market to throw up this geographical quirk. Perhaps the real estate agents of West Sussex had new religious movements on speed dial, or the 1950s equivalent of speed dial, which was probably just speedy dialing. But more than anything, Sussex just has a superfluity of country estates and a great train and car network into London. As the aristocracy declined and sought new owners, these vast, unwieldy estates came to market and looked like the perfect investment for groups who wanted to operate in shadowy privacy by day, but still dine out at the Athenaeum by night. So coincidence, yes, but one born of circumstance. Do you know about the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon? It's named for the West German militant faction, responsible for a spate of almost 300 bomb attacks from the 70s to the 1990s. The Bader-Meinhof gang, as they were known, are the sort of relatively niche piece of history that most people in English-speaking countries probably haven't heard of. But once informed of their existence, suddenly you'd hear them everywhere. Bada mine off this, bada mine off that. The effect is also called the frequency illusion, and to get into the neuroscientific weeds is a subset of the availability bias. You've almost certainly experienced it yourself. You're told about a celebrity you'd never heard of, or an historical event or a place. Then suddenly they're everywhere. 
You're being stalked by Butchers Butchers Gali, borne back ceaselessly into the South Sea bubble, driven inexorably down the A22 to East Grinstead. People are very naive in the sense that they think that the human mind is a camera, that we perceive the world and make decisions based on how we perceive the world. But the human mind is not a camera. The brain is a very active device. So the way we make sense of the world out there depends on our past experiences, our expectations, our hope, and we don't actually see the world the way it is. And those distortions are systematic and they help us perceive the world, but sometimes they bias us to misunderstand and misperceive the world out there. That's the voice of Etiel Draw, a neuroscientist based at University College London who specialises in cognitive biases. You know, on, on Wikipedia, for instance, there's a page called List of Cognitive Biases, and it's quite popular for people just to, as a sort of rabbit hole to fall down, to see all these different things they probably all feel a bit guilty of. You know, this very strict compartmentalising of different biases into, like, different complexes and syndromes or whatever. Do you accept that as a kind of way of working, or do you see it more as a kind of all working under the same neurological patterns? I see the list of biases that are out there and the definitions as a waste of time. Often I see definitions as a waste of time, not only in terms of biases, you know, in the university and other places where people read definitions. I don't give definitions mainly because many people can memorize the definitions but don't understand the concept. And many people understand something but don't have a formal definition. So understanding bias is not really promoted by having a list of the different kinds of biases and definitions and nuances. We have to understand the basic mechanisms of how our expectations, our hope, our experiences impact the information coming in and when it can cause us to go in the wrong direction and ways we can minimize those biases. Because I'm a very uh, crude explorer of this, one of the kind of biases that's kind of struck me in relation to the project that I'm doing is this kind of Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. Again, is that just part of this spectrum of biases or is there something specific to a sort of frequency illusion or is that just the same as any bias? I think that different biases may be triggered by different causes. There are different factors, there are different sources that can cause biases. But there's a certain common denominator of the biases which is the most interesting and that is the brain mechanisms, how the top-down processing, that's a technical term, the top-down processing guides and interferes with the information coming in. That's the top down, the information coming in is bottom up. So that it's not data driven, it's conceptually driven, which again is not a bad thing. It's the efficiency of the brain to function this way. That is common to all the biases. Then we have to start thinking about confirmation bias, hindsight bias, and different biases that they are a bit different, but that's nuances that even for scientists don't always matter. How do you think the internet has changed these things? I mean, I'm very aware of, for instance, in my accumulation of knowledge, that I I now have a process where I, it's much more tangential, I flip from one subject to another, you know, rather than sitting down and reading a, a single book on a text. I create all these clusters of connections because, you know, I'm, I'm clicking through links. And in your field, has there been research into how the internet has changed biases and patterns and the brain? 
I've been doing quite a lot of work on not only the internet, but technologies, and especially what we call cognitive technologies, where we offload a lot of the cognitive operations into the internet, artificial intelligence, and we collaborate. So we have what we call distributed cognition between people and technology, specifically about bias and specifically about internet, which are two small slices about the general issue of technology and human intelligence and uh, cognition, people believe that the internet has helped minimize biases because we have so much information out there, we can be exposed, but the opposite is happening. The internet increases biases. For example, one of the most powerful biases is confirmation bias, where we seek data to conform what we believe in already. So in the olden days, before the internet, I had an idea, I would open an encyclopedia and I read and it doesn't support my idea. I need to rethink about it. Now I do a search on the internet, right? I put into Google and I just go down. I get, you know, 100,000 hits and I go down 10, 20, maybe 100 until I find some idiot that agrees with me, right? You're going to find someone. So when you seek the availability of information enables confirmation bias because if I believe that Earth is flat or don't believe in evolution or the weirdest belief that you have, that you just think about it, you just do a search on the internet, you will find some group of people that support it. And now with the internet where you can connect to other people and chatbots and groups and search, you're going to find confirmation to whatever you believe, whether it's true or not true. So this is an example how the internet and technology not only minimize, but increase biases and confirmation bias specific. And there are many other examples of how technology influences human nature and in fact reduces our intelligence. People think how technology is making people smarter. No, it's in many ways reducing our abilities, our cognitive abilities, but that's in a whole huge area. So just finally, I'll just run my my very unacademic thesis by you, which is that I'm looking at this this town and people pose this question, why this particular town? And I basically think that in reality, A, it's not particularly unusual that most towns have, if you look hard enough, they have these things. But B, as soon as it became a thing, it became sort of self-reinforcing and they sort of it sort of sucked in various things that are actually not really to do with this town. So it's consumed into its orbit various things that are actually not part of the town. Do you think it's plausible that a combination of the internet, you know, I guess it's a kind of taxonomy issue in that the internet, it's easy to label all of these different things. You know, it's more satisfying to have one single town which has all these groups than to be like, well, this broader general area. And also, I guess, a a case of being like, suddenly, you know, every little town in England has a Wikipedia page that you can explore and you can unearth these histories. Is that plausible from a bias perspective? Yes, but it's a bit uh, complicated. The internet may cause it, but more likely the internet facilitates it, cause what I, what I call the bias snowball. So the internet just puts oil and enables it to grow much faster, but not necessarily uh, have caused it. We have all these things like self-fulfilling prophecies. It, it may start for a reason or may start accidentally, randomly, But in terms of the bias snowball, in terms of the internet and self-fulfilling prophecies and the magnet in our perception, it gets bigger and bigger and then it has its own life, right? And many times we're looking, you know, for simplicity 
And an example for this bias, noble, and self-fulfilling prophecy is the stock. So if somebody very, very famous says the stock is going to go up, now it's going to go up, not because it was going to go up, because they said so everybody's buying it. The more they buy it, the more it goes up. The more it goes up, the more people are buying it. So the same thing with this town, it could have been started for a small reason, you know, with one religious group or accidentally, and then it gets a reputation, a bias, a label, which may not be true or is true, it doesn't matter, but then it gets a label, so it attracts more groups. People have a stereotype connected, uh, an association of the town. The internet helps that spread very, very, very quickly. So the internet can be a critical element in the speed and the power that it can facilitate. And then you get a bias perception and you get a bias snowball about this town, which can by itself maintain it and grow. And then it also fits itself because maybe people who come and visit the town, maybe uh, different religious groups have a more fertile land to grow more of this in that. So it's a very, a lot, a lot of factors in the mix, including biases and including the internet. The frequency illusion is just one way in which the quirks of East Grinstead reappear and reinforce themselves. Someone tells you that the town is home to these strange religions, and then that fact just keeps popping up, until the premise seems canonical. Throughout the process of writing and making this podcast, one of the things I've been struck by is my own bias. I'm biased towards the fantastical. I'm biased towards arranging a narrative that is, in some way, compelling. I'm biased towards the proposition of East Grinstead being a really unique, unsettling place. The reality is that yes, the Scientologists are in East Grinstead, but the Mormons are really in Lingfield, the Anthroposophists are really in Forest Row, Opus Dei are really in Sharpthorn. Even me. I'm really from Turner's Hill and wrote my master's thesis on post-war town planning in Crawley. Why isn't that the subject of this podcast? Why am I drawn inextricably back to East Grinstead? On a map, these sites would look like freckles rather than a raging whitehead. But the way that we ingest knowledge has changed. It's less experiential more reliant on that constant stimulation of the click-through. And so, of course, knowledge clusters. The freckles coalesce. Our brains seek a pattern. East Grinstead will always be the town that didn't stare. It's written into the DNA of those streets. It is their only history that matters. The story they want to tell starts in the uncivilised wilderness of England and builds through centuries and generations to the civilising of this speck of land. A market, houses, a railway... That's the story of East Grinstead, and it's the story of every town. But history is a choose-your-own-adventure now. And when you tap East Grinstead into Google and the search brings up two results, one which says, Welcome to East Grinstead, Sussex's best town, and another which says, East Grinstead, Britain's strangest town. Which one do you click? Which history do you chase down the rabbit hole? This has been episode 6 of The Town That Didn't Stare, written, produced and presented by me, Nick Hilton. The intro and incidental music is by George Jennings and the end credits music is by Matt Payne and Ollie Lloyd at Shipyard Audio. On this episode, my interviewees were Ian Seller, Eileen Barker, John Ronson, Jonathan Parrott, Jack Tyndale, Tim Bale and ETL Draw. This is the final part of a six-part series available on all good podcast platforms. 
You can find out more about the show on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Just go to at the town pod or visit www.thetownpod.com for episode notes and more information. The Town That Didn't Stare is a Podo podcast. For more information, visit podopods.com.